Welcome to episode 526 with my guest, Dr. David Rossmarin. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is Mental Illness Happy Hour. We're just trying to get our shit together. That's all. <laughs> we're just, we're just locking hands and saying, how the fuck do we get through this? I, I have been having some trouble getting out of bed. I, I don't know if it's because of the whole rheumatoid arthritis thing. Sometimes when I first wake up in the morning, I'll feel like this stabbing pain in my wrists or down my legs or in my ankles. And it's not like it's nonstop, but it's fleeting moments of it. And it, it, you know, the first place I go to in my head is my body is trying to destroy itself. And it's a, it's a fucked up feeling when the enemy is inside your body. I can't imagine what people must go through that, that, that have cancer or something that's, that's terminal. It's got to be uh, so hard to make peace with it. And I'm trying to make peace with it. I'm trying to do what I can, watch my diet and stuff like that. But every little new creak in a joint or pain that I feel, uh, you know, the Catastrophizer 4000, uh, which I had in my brain before this, has certainly got a lot of shit to, uh, to think about. A couple of days ago, I was, for some reason, this guy popped into my head and that, that I knew from high school. He had uh, taken a job in right out of high school in a quarry, like a, a union job, and he was making great money. And we were just all like, oh, my God, this guy's got so much, so much money. He's got a pension. And I was just thinking, where, where is he today? Is he still working at that job? Is he retired? Does he have a, does he have a pension? And... God, I hope he's not one of those people whose whose pension gets pilfered by some fucking psychopath, and then they got to work the rest of their days. And then I started thinking about my my retirement, and you know, am I going to have enough money to retire? And what happens if I get bilked out of money by you know somebody who's supposed to pay me money? And and I was imagining, what am I going to do if somebody fucks me over? Well, I guess I'll I'll threatened to talk about it publicly that's like the only leverage i have is is i'll I'll spread the word about how bad their corporation is and so then i'm 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 imagining me talking on the phone with them and them saying well that's blackmail and then i'd say no it's not because i'm not asking for additional money just the money that you owe me and then they'd say that they didn't see it that way and they'd threaten me with a lawsuit and then I'd have to use up what little money I already had left and then I wouldn't be able to afford my medicine and my legs would start hurting more and I'm getting pissed and all of this is five minutes after waking up I'm still laying in bed and I'm fucked before I even put my slippers on it is sometimes it is a full-time job being a worry wart. Anyway, I hope you uh, you dig our our episode today with Dr. Ross Marin. Uh, before we get to it, I want to uh, read a couple of surveys, um, and before we do that, I want to remind you one of our sponsors for this uh, this episode is BetterHelp.com online counseling. Uh, as you can. <laughs> gather from the first five minutes of this podcast i need counseling and uh, i use better help and i love my therapist donna she's awesome she she gets my brand of crazy and uh, she helps me and she's compassionate and knowledgeable and uh better help that's better com has a huge variety of counselors uh, so just go to betterhelp.com slash mental make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from this podcast and then just fill out a questionnaire and if they feel that they have a counselor who's a good match for you they'll pair you up with one and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if if it's your thing and you need to be over 18 okay a couple of surveys this is from uh the struggle in a sentence survey and a woman who calls herself pocket uh, describes her adhd it feels like putting together a puzzle that unbeknownst to me is actually six different puzzles it is so fucking good oh my god that's so good uh this guy who calls himself beanie boo about his anxiety he writes it's like accidentally falling into a hole which is slightly too deep to jump and grab the edge and climb out of while people with ladders constantly walk by and briefly glance at you any comments to make the podcast better 
bedtime stories. Hmm. Once upon a time, there was a boy who lived in a shoe. He lived on a street filled with shoe houses, but he always felt different because his family's house was an orthotic shoe. He wished and wished that his house could be like the others. He was tired of being teased. He was sad. His grandmother, who had lived in the shoe since she was a little girl, said, Jacques, did you know there are people who don't even have a shoe to call home? Why are you calling me Jacques? Oh, she said, I thought you were Jacques. This lighting is awful. See, he said, this shoe sucks. She pulled him close and hugged him. Did you know that when I was your age, I felt the very same way? I wanted nothing more than to live in a regular shoe like everyone else, or at least a comfortable loafer. Tears came to his eyes. But I'm so sad. I just want to be like everyone else. But she said, if you were like everyone else, you wouldn't be special. I'm special? You better believe it, bucko. I'm not bucko. God damn this lighting. Who am I talking to? Eric. Ah, well, that complicates things, Eric. Am I special? Of course. How? Give me a minute. Several minutes passed. Ah, I know you're special because you tell the truth even when we don't want to hear it. Well, I hate living here. I want to run away and never come home. His grandmother knelt down and looked him in the belt and said, You're 26. You're free to do as you please. But it would break our hearts if you ran away. We love you more than you could ever know. Really? Yes, she said. Now take your Depakote. I hope you like that. Uh, and then finally, one more survey before we get to the interview. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by Birthday Girl. And she writes, My mom passed away unexpectedly the morning after my 18th birthday. My dad and I were the ones that found her. As we sat on the couch processing what was going on, police, paramedics, and other first responders were coming in and out of the house. One firefighter came in and noticed a large happy birthday balloon floating by the front door and asked very sweetly if it had been someone's birthday. My dad quickly responded with a smile, yeah, it was her 18th birthday yesterday, pointing at me. What a great birthday present this is, and started laughing. He then turned to me and said, happy birthday, and continued laughing. You should have seen the look on the firefighter's face. Shortly after, my dad and I were split up and I was questioned by a police officer as to why my dad slept on the couch that night. I explained that he snored and it was common for my mom to kick him out of the bedroom. However, I watch enough crime shows that it was most likely my dad's behavior that prompted the interrogation. It's been eight years and happy birthday still doesn't sound the same since that day. I just wanted to get the fuck away from my life. You know, I, I couldn't have felt any lower. Grief, guilt, shame. Why wasn't I born a girl? There's a switch that gets flipped in my head. I'm supposed to be a girl. I experience being treated like an animal. How can a just God... I have a vomit fetish. ...let humans do this to each other? Help! I fucking flew over the cuckoo's nest. My wife's losing it. I thought it was all about me. I don't know what to do. I would have committed suicide if I could have watched my funeral. A Polaroid I found of my mother um, naked in a dentist chair. And my body doesn't quite... I think I did eight days in L.A. County Jail. ...fit how I see myself. What was it all for? Why are my friends dead? Everything that I did, there's a comfort in the scars for me, was in service of OCD. You've already had all the paper cuts. Step away from the paper. It's really hard to see the picture when you're inside the frame. You know, it takes a larger view to see your life. Just actually have somebody listen to you. Yeah. And I got up and got my tooth and left. <laughs> well... <laughs> I'm here with Dr. David Rossmarin, who is um, Director of Spirituality and Mental Health at McLean Hospital. Uh, you're an Assistant Professor of Psychology in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. And one of the topics that we're going to talk about is denial, which obviously is extremely timely in uh, today's climate. But I think also in general, I think a lot of people also have personal issues with uh, maybe somebody in their life that 
just uh, you can't wrap your head around uh, why they can't see things as other people see them. Where where do first of all, welcome. And, and where do we begin? Thanks for having me on on your show. Um, where do we begin? I think um, in, in some ways, you know, as you said, you know, denial, it's definitely ripe today. It's all over the place, whether it's regarding the pandemic, the idea that it doesn't really exist. Um, uh, you know, maybe up until two weeks ago, the idea that, um, that uh, Biden was president, um, there's just a lot of people denying um, aspects of reality. Climate change. Climate change is another great example. Yeah. Great example. It's just, it's just not a problem. It's just not a happening when our experiences tell us otherwise. And, right. um, you know, I've been kicking around some ideas with some, with my colleagues here and, uh, th- I, I don't really know. I mean, there's not a lot of great research on denial, but I'll tell you where some of the conversations have gone, which has been kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. The first point is that denial is actually a natural and maybe even in some regards, healthy process that people engage in when they are experiencing distress, when there's aspects of reality that we don't like to face, there's different strategies we can use to cope with that. One of them is just pretending that, well, that's just, that just doesn't exist. Right. And um, it's not always necessarily so bad. <laughs> give me, give me some examples. Cause my mind is blanking uh, right now on, it, would it, for example, be growing up with a parent uh, who is unsafe and you have to deny that so that you can live with the reality that uh, you're not trapped? Yeah, unsafe is a tough example because, you know, then, you know, there's, there's always uh, at some point um, diminishing returns. But um, um, living with somebody who's just a, a difficult person, mm-hmm. um, having... Um, what would the benefit of, that, of, of that be though? Uh, I mean, well, one the of healthy... the benefits is that it can enable us to maintain our connection in that situation long enough that we can figure out how, to, what to do about it. And if, if we were to come into contact with all aspects of reality all at once, I think it would be overwhelming. <laughs> That's true. That's true. You know, I myself being perfectly honest, I think I engaged in a fairly uh, significant amount of denial at the beginning of the pandemic. I don't know about you, but I'm like, yeah, this will be over in a month. Mm-hmm. It can't possibly be longer than that. I, I think the big one is I'm too healthy for it to affect me. Even if I do get sure. it, I'll, I'll bounce right back. And then I, th- I think we see enough people uh, near our age group die to certainly question that sure a hundred percent um some degree of denial though can be uh you know the example you're giving i think might be less advantageous but mm-hmm. uh, in terms of coping you know what i will take your example from before you mentioned about um you know someone who's in an unsafe relationship sometimes people just can't handle the fact that they have a loved one who's doing something which is dangerous to them and they need to get some emotional and cognitive distance from that in order to function day to day until they can be strong enough to actually deal with the situation. That makes sense. And do you, do you believe that's probably part of the evolutionarily uh, developed brain? Who knows where it comes from, but uh, you know, I do think that it's an, it's an aspect of, of life that if we're all being honest, we all engage in to some degree. I think we're very quick to pathologize. And there's a lot of people pointing fingers saying like, how can people deny climate change? How can people deny the presidency? How can people Mm -hmm. deny, you know, COVID? And I don't think that's fair because everybody, again, to some degree engages in these denial processes. Mm -hmm. Um, And it could be that there's certain aspects of COVID that are so emotionally dysregulating that some people the only way that they can deal with it is by disconnecting from aspects of reality i i 
imagine most of us by this time have already heard stories uh, that nurses or doctors will tell where someone is breathing their last breaths, dying from COVID and saying, I don't have it. I don't have it. Sure. Sure. I think we've all heard stories like that. Um, and, you know, I guess it, like anything in life, it can be used for, for good or it can be used for evil. And uh, I think that there are, um, you know, in psychological terms, it can be used in, in, uh, in positive ways and it can be used in negative ways, in ways that are maladaptive. I live in an area where there are uh, a lot of temples and I was walking past one of them yesterday and I saw the, uh, you know, the typical security patrol parked outside there. And I, and I turned to my girlfriend and I said, you know, the, the climate that we're living in is probably nothing new to people who are Jewish, that, that there has always been this, thing hanging over their head of you know, people denying the Holocaust, uh, people who make up reasons to be paranoid about, um, about Jewish people. Uh, what, what do you think or feel when, when you see somebody denying the Holocaust? It's a really good question. You know, as somebody who's Jewish myself and, you know, and, uh, orth and Orthodox or religiously Jewish at that, um, I can't say that it doesn't sting, <laughs> but at the same time, um, I, I, I kind of, I, un, I understand it as, well, let's, uh, let's actually, this is an interesting example. When it comes to Holocaust denial, the purpose there isn't to, it's not a psychological, if you will, defense to not confront reality. That's actually an attack mechanism in order to undermine an aspect of history for the, if you will, you know, they're trying to construct a purpose of, of, anti, of perpetuating and increasing anti-Semitism. So that's not a, you know, that's, that's, that's a different, more, a different I think brand. that's a different type of denial. That's not, yeah. that's, that's more in the psychopathy line where yeah. someone is, oh, I never did anything to you. And, you know, right. they're causing them harm every day. It's like, like on of a kind of like gaslighting kind of thing. And I, I guess there's a denial piece to it, but that's more for, for purposes of causing, causing harm. So I see that as fundamentally different. Yeah. Um, but I have met people who are just like, I can't imagine that happen. I can't, I can't fathom something like that happening. Which I think um, is different, you know, like 9-11, right. I, I had to watch the footage 50 times because my brain could not absorb it. It was real. I, I knew it happened, but saw it. yeah, I saw it, but I just, uh, I couldn't digest it. That's an aspect of denial. That's, that's, uh, and your way of dealing with it was don't deny. I have to face reality by watching it multiple times, which is fine. That's a, that's a fine approach. Probably a good approach. I would say in that case. How often when you're going into temple, does the thought occur to you that some type of violence could be inflicted? Not often at all. Firstly, I mean, this last year, you know, going to going to temple, going to synagogue is not a huge part of my schedule um, right. just because of uh, quarantine restrictions and, and, and whatnot. And my family's taking it pretty seriously. Um, um we're not denying COVID, um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, prior to that, I'll be honest, not not a whole lot. Um, you know, I, you mentioned at the beginning. So my area, of, my primary of area of expertise in the spirituality and health, and um, I think uh, you know, drawing on spiritual resources is certainly something that helps me to you know, grapple with that uncertain unknown. Um, and, uh, and there's data that I'm not, I'm not the only, I'm not the only one, you know, I see that in my studies all the time that um, it can be, it can be a resource. Uh, and, and I would agree it, it, uh, finding uh, a source greater than myself to deal with my addictions 
to cope with my problems. Some people might say, well, you're living in a fantasy world. And denial, right? (laughs) Yeah. Or it's possibly true that there isn't something uh, out there that I can tap into. But at the very least, uh, it's a handy tool for me to fool myself. (laughs) I don't believe I'm fooling myself. It it gives me strength. It brings me comfort. Um, and, and I believe it's one with science because for me, it's, it's energy. It's, you know, where does, where does the energy of love come from? Um, that's what I try to connect to rather than getting into hate and wanting to try to control things that I don't have any, any power, uh, over and, you know, trying to be of service where, where I can, um, what, uh, I know it's kind of a big question, but uh, talk about spirituality, not only in your life, but in the mental health realm. Yeah, I mean, I certainly run into what you said before, that idea that, oh, it's a a denial of reality to be spiritual. And I I disagree, and primarily because... um, You know, there's certainly no proof that there isn't something spiritual. Right. You know, people say, well, there's no proof that there is. Well, there's, there's certainly no proof that there isn't. Um, and if anything, the order and design in the universe to me is quite palpable. I think, uh, you know, whether it's an evolutionary process or otherwise, it, it's pretty amazing that, you know, all human beings have a relatively similar look to them. We have five hand, five fingers. We have an opposing thumb. We have the ability to do certain things. It's pretty, to me, seems miraculous and you know whether someone chooses to see that as random or as as designed i think it's more a matter of perspective than one being denial and one being true i think that that's really a a choice and a a matter of perspective taking Mm -hmm. um so i see it as somewhat orthogonal to our current discussion on on denial but um here's something i will tell you though um Many patients I've met and, and dealt with clinically, and the research does bear this out as well, will struggle to deal with aspects of their lives, but ho- harnessing a, a spiritual perspective, a spiritual take will help them to actually come into, to confront the reality that they're facing. And in what way and what thoughts specifically are they inviting spirituality in? I'll give you a, I'll give you a case example, just one that's coming to mind. In fact, a, a family I met with this very morning where the, the father is really struggling with a very significant stressor of a family member who actually that family member is really in denial and it's causing this father extreme stress and extreme distress because he's sort of left dealing with the fallout of this other individual's denial and there's very significant financial and other fallout uh, medical um uh many a social fallout uh many aspects of it it really is a taxing issue and I found that the, the father I was speaking to, his emotions, he was very separated from his emotions. He really wasn't processing how he felt. He was very, whenever we spoke, very task-oriented. What are we going to do? How are we going to fix the problem? Mm-hmm. And he wasn't able to really feel his feelings, to share his feelings, to experience them. And I think he's making, in some ways, bad decisions and managing it because he can't re- affect, re- regulate his affect. And I encouraged him to think about it in spiritual terms and even to pray about it. And he froze in session. He's like, it's too, it's just too raw. It's just too raw for me. And I said, give it a try, give it a try. And um, he didn't pray in our session, but he, he, we were in touch later in the day and he had clearly engaged in some sort of a spiritual process. And he, I think it gave him the strength to be able to face the really challenging circumstances that he's having circumstances that I myself would not be able to handle. What forms can uh, spirituality take for people? Oh, there's many, I mean, you know, just as uh, there's more than many forms of, uh, 
anything else in life, you know, spirituality has many forms. Um, common ones are um, the idea that there is a higher power or a God, um, that that higher power or God's on your side and that, mm-hmm. you know, you have an ally, spiritual ally who knows what's going on, right? The concept of omniscience, uh, who has the ability to help, the omnipotence concept. These are very, you know, these are taken from various traditions, not only the Jewish tradition, which I'm most familiar with, but these are common core spiritual concepts, which are really any world religion and non-religious uh, spiritual traditions have these in common to some degree. Um, the idea of praying to, well, it's not an idea, the behavior of praying to that entity and uh, seeking help, whether it's a request or uh, simply speaking one's mind to that entity to try to share a burden. I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up because one of the things that's been helpful to me when I feel really overwhelmed by things in my life is even though I don't believe that there's a dude in the sky that's listening to me, right. I, I, I believe letting go of energy, even if it's negative, and especially if, if you're coming from a place of I am powerless and whatever force is there possibly in the universe, I need to connect with that. And, you know, people talk about a relationship with your higher power. And to me, any relationship is going to have conversations that aren't pleasant. And so there are times when I will yell, I can't handle this. Why are you doing this to me? Please, please help me with this. I can't take this anymore. And there, there, I do find some relief in, in doing that. You're you're definitely not alone. Many, many a biblical figure has, uh, you know, shared his or her um, pain with, uh, with their higher power. Uh, I, I kind of interrupted your, your thought. Do you remember what, where, where you were? No, headed? I think you, I think you didn't interrupt. I think you added to it. I think, um, I think the, 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 we were talking about different forms of spiritual uh, yeah. life. So the idea of believing in something, praying to that entity, another um, concept is um, um, finding uh, finding meaning making. What is it that, that, what is our spiritual task in life? What are we here to accomplish? Um, do we have a job or jobs? What are those? And how does our current situation, whether it's stressful or otherwise fit in? I think if people took these approaches to the current situations that we were speaking about before, denial would be a lot, would be mitigated and we'd also have better control, emotional control, but by and large, with potential exceptions. How, how important do you think community is in having a spiritual life? Good question. It's one I get all the time, right? How do you uh, sort of separate the spiritual versus the uh, communal aspects of religious life, for example, as an effect. Um, having a spiritual faith community is, to me, uh, and, my, and my data does bear this out to some degree, and certainly others even, who have even studied it to a greater degree than I have, is uh, that faith communities are fundamentally psychologically different than non-faith communities, in that the bonds which unite faith communities are I'll call them vertical as well as horizontal. We have social connections, but then there's also a vertical, if you will, a spiritual connection, which links members of that faith community together. That's a little bit. And this doesn't necessarily have to be religious. It could just be a a commonly shared belief. It it could be. Although when we talk about communities, typically it is a religious group. Just, but. By statistically, it's more likely to be than a spiritual, gotcha. non, non, non-religious group. Although in theory, yeah, I, I suppose if you had a you know group of like-minded spiritualists who you know engage in whatever it is that they do um, without um, uh, you know specific religious practice, I think that probably could be the same. But in any event, um, that spiritual uniting force will might ask that might prompt one to ask questions like, why is this person in my community? Why were they brought to me? Why was I brought to them? What do we have to teach each other? What's the spiritual latent spiritual meaning behind our connection? Um, how can we grow together in a way that actually isn't just friends, but we're really 
perpetuating a spiritual mission of the world, you know, the, the, which are larger questions, right? right? They're not just, here's my coworker, Bob, and, you know, we have a project together. It's, right. You know, I, I'm glad you brought that up because I think a lot of times spirituality and especially organized religion is merely viewed as something that's about worship, which to me is the least important aspect of it. And the part that historically, certainly in the, in the Catholic world um, was the grandiosity, the pomp and circumstance were kind of ways to intimidate uh, the people and to gain a semblance of control, you know, not completely, but certainly elements of that historically, the, the facts show that. Uh, and for many people who worship isn't an important part of it, and I would include myself in, in, in one of them, uh, sure. it's really about meaning and, and purpose. And the comfort is a byproduct of of that rather than just seeking it for comfort you know when i'm stuck in traffic you know god please you know right ease, ease up the flow of traffic so i can get to my appointment on time because i really want to book this job you know that that to me uh is is not the the brand of spiritual but you know for some people hey if that works and then traffic opens up and you feel a sense of comfort and that something's listening to you that that's great but for me it has to be something greater than that and it can't just involve my my needs uh yeah you know i think there are many diverse ways to experience and express spiritual life um, sort of getting back to the main topic here on, on denial, and I think these are, these are some ways that people can confront um, aspects of reality that are otherwise very difficult. I'm thinking of other patients that I've seen, people from, uh, um, who have been through war, for example, veterans, who will come back and sometimes they're even told by their superiors, don't speak to your wife, don't speak to your friends about what you saw, about what you did, <clears throat> they're not going to understand keep it bottled up and they really don't have an outlet and spirituality and religion in many cases is the only outlet that they have. They don't have anywhere else to speak about, to review, to sort of have a post-traumatic processing of their experiences. And without that, it can, even with it, it's not often not enough, but without it, it's, it can be extremely painful because they'll, uh, you know, uh, create too much emotional and cognitive distance from their memories, and then they come back to haunt them in pretty significant ways. Yeah, and the and the isolating, which is often, you know, as you know, a, a coping mechanism of people who are are dealing with trauma, and it's uh, it really in my opinion, kind of exacerbates the, the struggle that they, that they have and reinforces, you know, it, it's, it's home field advantage for the darkness. Have you ever read the book, book of what it's like to, to go to war by Carl Marlantes? I have not. Tell it, me about it. It is a fantastic book. And he talks about, you know, the act of killing and how it takes us from innocent people to, I, w- I wouldn't use the word monster, but the phrase he says is it's finishing school for us. In other words, that darkness is already there and, you know, the shadow self already exists and it's not the people, uh, you know, everybody has a propensity for wanting to kill, but it's, it's that darkness um, and that thrill, even if you're horrified by your own actions, that thrill of doing it is, already there a lot more than people would like to admit. Wow. That's really profound. Yeah. And, and again, I am paraphrasing. Yeah. Uh, uh, even paraphrase. That's a profound idea. I think what you're speaking to actually is that there are aspects of ourselves that we're not even aware of. And even just thinking about that, it's pretty terrifying. We, the only way to deal with that is to deny it Yeah. until you can't. Until reality just 
ha- you, then you have to face it. You just have to face the music, but that's what it is. When, um, go ahead. No. Okay. Another thing that he shared in his book is, you know, he talks about there's, there are all of these ceremonies for sending a soldier off to war, but we have none when they come back. And he talked about as a man, how important it would have been for him to have female comfort and tenderness when, when he came back and there was none of it. It's, it's a really profound book that I, I recommend every, everybody read. Thanks for the tip. Yeah. What else would you like to, to talk about? Well, I think that, um, you know, uh, in some ways, a main message is that um, denial is a process that we all engage in and uh, pointing fingers at, at, you know, those who are denying today is um, uh, when I hear people doing that and I've seen it written and, you know, some of my colleagues have even done that. I by myself have probably done it at times. It's not, I, I don't think it really, um, fully captures the psychological phenomena that we're seeing. I think that uh, to some degree, we all engage in denial. We all need to engage in denial at times. It is a way of, uh, in some ways, dealing with reality, giving us time. It gives us time to be able to process reality. And um, it's not necessarily a bad thing, although it can have negative consequences, of course. And um, I think we, uh, if someone's denying, if someone is denying, denying aspects of life, then we need to be more validating, compassionate, and understanding as opposed to uh, judging and uh, um, yeah, look, looking down upon such people. You know, you were talking about one of the clients you had who was intellectualizing things. And uh, one of my experiences, especially with people in my support group community, one of the biggest hindrances for them coming to believe that there could be something greater than, than themselves with some type of plan that they may be a part of is their intellect. And one of the things that I personally had to do to get to a place where I could even consider that something exists with all the horror that there is in the world was I had to let my intellect go and say, what if, what if there, there is something, let me act as if, there is some type of positive matrix in the world that I can tap into that um, whether I'm right or, or wrong, just let me try it. And that was a big, a big step for me. And as I look at people you know, who are denying the election and look at certain political figures that seem just unimaginably destructive to our society. I think that for these people, facts don't matter because there's some type of emotional resonance that is stirred in them that overrides intellect. And I believe that emotional energy can always override intellectual energy. Is is there any science to to bear that out or am well, that, I, just... I mean, that's, that's certainly the case. I mean, we, you know, we have, uh, the, you know, the middle part of our brain is, um, it contains the, the amygdala and surrounding, surrounding areas, um, which are emotion regulation centers. And those, um, when they uh, are activated, it's very hard to, um, for a person to access their, their cortex, which is more in the, the front or outer layers of the brain. And that's where your thinking processes. Um, so, uh, you know, very much so. And, and everybody, I'm, I'm sure, listening to this can relate that when your emotions are running really high, when a person's angry, you stop thinking. When your person's very anxious, very sad or despondent, your, your thinking changes. And you can't access certain aspects of reality. It just, it's just too much. It's just too intense. And uh, the the emotions that are that we experience, I, I think what you're saying is spot on. That you know, when uh, I, the only one caveat I would say is that all of us have a propensity and vulnerability to experience that. Um, 
Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll give you an example. Years ago, I was playing hockey and this guy cheap shot at me. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Slapshot, but there's this scene where two guys are skating in opposing directions and one guy sticks his arms you know, straight out and, and catches the guy in the neck and just clotheslines him. And this guy did that to me. And I saw a red. And so I went after this guy uh, and the ref stepped in and my arms were pulled behind my back and I spit at him because it was the uh, the only thing that that I could do. And I wound up hitting the ref in the oh, face man. with my spit and getting suspended oh, for man. five games. Yeah, and you're out. <laughs> Yeah. And so my teammates joked about that and I was really ashamed, but I, I understand what that feels like to be completely helpless and disrespected, at least in that moment. And it's a terrifying feeling when you see red and you become a person that you do not like. I, I, I think it's an experience that many people can relate to, whether it's anger or whether it's anxiety or whatever it is. And um, that, that, that could be what people are experiencing when it comes to the coronavirus, or when it comes to other aspects of, 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 uh, of life right now. Did we finish your thought on, you were talking about uh, communities and you talked about the vertical and the horizontal. Did we finish that? I think I, I, think, so. I, okay. I think my main, my main point there was that um, the spiritual communities I think can be fundamentally different than, um, than um, non-spiritual communities and that they can link people, they can have both spiritual and social meaning to them. Um, and I think that that, that, that first layer um, is, uh, is unique. And how that about for point. people who, um, let's say people who are in a grief support group, you know, they're not worshiping a similar deity. Um, but there is a bond there of understanding and mutual experience. Yeah. Grief's a good example that also relates to denial. You know, some aspects of the grieving process are meant to, um, bring a person into, contact with the reality of the, the loss that they've experienced and you know the the you know our conscious awareness of that loss changes and fluctuates over time and the goal in some ways of grief of a grieving process is to be able to uh, move forward with the reality of whatever's happened and not that it fades into the background but it becomes part of somebody's uh, memory and consciousness and they're able to move on um, in terms of the, you know, qualitatively, firstly, a lot of people access spirituality in times of grieving and times of mourning and loss. And, you know, these sorts of things do bring up a spiritual, uh, uh, concepts and, and themes. So, uh, many grieving grief groups, grief support groups, like you mentioned, might have actual explicit spiritual meaning, but if not, um, I guess my main point then again was that, you know, as a cognitive frame, you know, if somebody thinks about their relationship with other people in their faith community as being, having a spiritual meaning, why they are there, so to speak, with that person, um, I think that, that, that that's an additional, uh, uh, the, the, the propensity and potential for meaning making in such a circumstance, I think is in some ways greater than it is if it happenstance brought brought folks together in the secular context. Yeah, there are some moments um, when you feel like this can't be a coincidence and the universe is just giving you a little high five or a, or a low five. This, this, the energy uh, that I get from those moments, especially if I'm in a place where I'm losing hope in humanity, or at least getting very discouraged by the amount of darkness compared to the light um, can be uh, a really nice shot in the arm. Yes. I think we all need a shot in the arm now and in general. So is there, you know, as we look at the news and we see that the denial is having actual physical repercussions and threatening the rule of law in our, in our country, how can we deal with it other than just resenting them and wishing that they weren't here? 
I hope that's not our approach at all. I think that we all need to have a healthy dose of compassion and also validation and to recognize that, let me ask you, had the election swung the other way, would you be in denial? You know, that's a good question. Um, I Maybe not to the extent of, you know, taking arms to Washington, but right. there would have been, a, there would be a lot of people in denial and, my, and myself included, who I don't know. I don't know how, I, how I would feel. I don't know I, how I would feel. I believe that I would uh, feel that the election results were valid because I do believe that that there, you know, unless there was enough proof to show it otherwise. And certainly if these were taken before the courts, uh, I I would accept that that those were the results very unhappily. And I'd, you know, be filled with fear and uh, resentment. But um I don't know. You know, that is an interesting question. I think a lot of us experienced that in 2016. You know, how could this guy who bragged about sexually assaulting people, how could people still vote for him after that, even if they dislike the other candidate? I think that we are all, that's my main point, is that we are all vulnerable. Not only are we vulnerable, we all engage in this. This is, this is part of, the human condition. And I'm not even surprised by it. I mean, maybe I'm surprised by the extent of it. I didn't realize it would get this bad, but uh, I'm not, I'm not that surprised by the actual phenomenon. I think that's in some ways the main, the main point here. And the only way I, I believe to move forward is by, by being compassionate and understanding mm-hmm. that we're human. We're not, we're not perfect. And uh, we, you know, if we siphon off everybody who doesn't seem to have a perspective that makes sense, mm-hmm. our world's become very small, very small. One of the phrases that I found to describe when I can't get my head around something that somebody else believes is that, and, and I choose that I, I can't have a relationship with that person anymore is that I say that our realities don't overlap enough that I can have a relationship with them. And I don't separate myself from them out of hate or bitterness. It's just, um, it's draining to me. And I feel that they, as wrong as I think they are, they should be given the dignity to, to have their own reality. It doesn't mean that I have to subject myself to it. Um, but I, I, listen, I think that's a fine approach. If somebody says, listen, I, I just can't, I don't have the strength to be able to deal with this amount of tension, these difficulties. I have to focus on my area. My, I have to focus my energies on things that are more approximately close, but that's not denying. That's not pretend, wishing that they would go away or it's just, mm-hmm. I'd like to be close. I just don't have the energy. I don't have the capacity to handle this right now. Yeah. One of the concepts that was kind of a revelation for me is I can have compassion for people at a distance. It doesn't mean I have to hang out with them. It just. Yeah. I uh, think that's fair. I I think that's fair. Anything else that you would uh, like to share before we wrap up? Only that I'm grateful to you for your many, many years of running this podcast and. Oh, thank you. You know, spreading, uh, spreading information and, and uh, about mental health uh, and very many facets of mental health over the years to your, to your audience members. And thanks very much for having me on your show. It's my pleasure, truly. Many thanks to uh, Dr. Ross Marin. Um, before we take it out with uh, some surveys, uh, I am reading a book that is so fucking fascinating. It's called Without Conscience, and it was written... God, probably 30 years ago, but it's about psychopaths. And anybody who is interested in psychopathy, uh, it's one of the most compelling books I've ever read. And I've read other books on uh, psychopathy, but this one is so good. And you can't help, as you read it, thinking this is the autobiography of Donald Trump. It, it, It is him to a T. 
to a T. I saw yesterday that Mike Pence is upset that Trump didn't call him to check up on him when he had been evacuated on, on January 6th. Really? That you were surprised by that? What? Have you not been paying attention for the last four years? That's, that's like saying, I can't believe the wolf didn't save me any pizza. <laughs> you know, you, you threw your lot in with him, man. I don't like to see anybody get hurt or be scared, but, you know, what what you did, you knew you knew he was a sick motherfucker that was the opposite of what quote-unquote Christian values are all about, and you threw your lot in with him, and how you can be surprised that uh, the biting dog bit you. Anyway, enough of that. Let's get to some surveys. This is uh, from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Jolene and about her compulsive eating. She writes, food is like the loving caress I've been craving all my life. Thank you for that. This is the same survey filled out by uh, Nothing But Nerves and about their depression. Depression is the feral animal that's always tracking me. It nips at my heels and makes a home in my chest, suffocating me. ADHD makes me feel like everyone else was given a list of rules on how to act in the world, and I'm constantly having to pretend I know what the fuck I'm doing, too, for fear of looking stupid. About anxiety. Anxiety is my most loyal companion, never leaving my side, even when I beg about OCD. My fingers bleed, my gums bleed, my ass bleeds, but nothing is ever clean enough. Wow. Snapshot from her life. Because of past traumas and abuse, my childhood fear of being alone in a room for more than five minutes, would love to know where that stems from, resurfaced at 18. I am now almost 23, and though I've greatly improved over the years, I, without fail, every night, still have moments of panic when alone in the dark and must carefully listen for the sound of someone else breathing until I fall asleep. Sometimes I think I can hear it and will sit in horrible frozen panic until the sun rises. Holy fuck. Wow. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Dory shares about her depression, like having a vignette filter on life. There's always dark around the edges, and when the intensity is turned up, the dark covers the whole picture. That is a good one. Thank you for that, Dory. Um, hmm. Who is this one filled out by? I don't have a name. Uh, or is this part of this one? No. Uh, someone writes about their PTSD. A fear of having my neck touched or watching someone else have theirs being touched. Because even 20 years later, seeing it or feeling it brings me right back to being strangled in my sleep. Wow. Wow. About her son's schizophrenia. It's like seeing a person who died, someone you can physically touch, but no one is longer there. Wow. Wow. These are some heavy... I'm glad I'm sitting down for these. Fuck. This is such a good one about depression. Uh, filled out by Kay, the 28-year-old grown-up. And uh, he writes uh, about his depression, sitting down and doing a thing and feeling like I'm in the other room. Wow. Yeah, just feeling like a ghost. I think one of the hardest things being depressed is when you're around people who are happy and joyous. It's just you feel so... It just highlights how how down you feel. It's like it's like watching the staff of Applebee's sing happy birthday to the potato famine. This is a happy moment filled out by uh, V. And I love this one. Uh, she writes, One morning on my way to work, I stepped into my usual bus and saw something flutter by out of the corner of my eye. I didn't pay it any mind until a while later the same thing landed on my shoulder. I turned to find a butterfly had landed there. 
For the rest of the ride, it stayed on my shoulder, and I was overcome with probably a bit of grandiose happiness at the idea that this little insect felt comfortable enough to stay on my shoulder when it could have landed on any other surface in the bus. At the same time, I worried about the rain outside and my approaching bus stop. Should I shoo it off before? Clearly, it wouldn't make it in the rain, but there was no food for it in the bus either. So I did what I usually do and decided not to make a decision at all. At my stop, I stepped outside the bus with the butterfly still stuck to my shoulder, doing my damnedest to hold my umbrella just right so no rain would touch my new companion. Close to my workplace, there were a few shrubs and trees, and the butterfly decided to cross the small distance and leave. Feeling grateful for the little guy having made my day, I turned back around and whispered goodbye in its general direction. Upon turning back around, I found a co-worker approaching me. Normally, my socially anxious self would have been mortified at the idea of someone seeing me talk to a butterfly, or worse, plants, like a fucking Disney princess, but I still felt so happy at such a small shared moment with nature at the beginning of my day that I didn't care. I'm the queen of the butterflies, bitch. (laughs) Oh, I fucking love that. Thank you for that one. This is from uh, one of our surveys about um, older females sexually abusing younger males. And uh, this was filled out by a woman in her 20s who uh, calls herself, I still carry the shame. And uh, she writes, I was between the ages of 7 and 11. Seven and eleven. My childhood is very fuzzy, so I apologize for the lack of specificity. A young boy between one and two who was a child of a family friend was put under my care for a few hours. I was obsessed with sex when I was little. I started watching porn at a very young age, and the effects are still with me today. I knew that I would be watching him on another floor, so I took the chance to explore and learn about male anatomy. I wanted to know if a young child could get an erection. I remember touching or at least trying to touch him a few times and having him yell or get frustrated and then get upset. I also did this to a young boy I babysat around the same age when I was 10 to 12. I hate myself for what I did. I was the caretaker of these babies and I took advantage of them and my power. I carry this guilt with me every day, and I get physically ill thinking of the trauma I may have left them with. It has been the catalyst to self-harm events and suicidal episodes throughout my life, and I am only 24. Words can never fix what I have done, but I just wish I could take away any pain or lasting traumas that I caused. I would carry that for them in a heartbeat. I am so sorry for what I have done. I have no sexual interest in children, and the idea makes me ill. So I just do not know why I did what I did back then. Uh, Have you ever told anyone? My therapist, but I never went into great detail. Uh, Remembering these things, what feelings come up? Shame, guilt, fear, pain. Uh, Do you feel any damage was done? I pray every day that there wasn't. Uh, she was also raised in a totally chaotic uh, home and was the victim of sexual abuse and, and never reported it. And first of all, I want to thank you for, for going so deep and sharing such a personal and, and, and painful and, and shame-filled uh, moment from your life. And I, and I just want to say a couple of things. Number one, the important thing is that you're not that person anymore. And I know you you know all this stuff intellectually, but sometimes it's nice to hear somebody say it out loud when we're, you know, uh, feeling shame about a mistake we made or someone we hurt. And, uh, you know, you harming yourself or committing suicide is not going to undo any of the stuff that you did. And we all make mistakes. You know, I, I have a history of objectifying women and in, in, in using them for, for sex. Uh, and I'm ashamed of it. And there's few things in life I regret more than, than, than that. And I think about it almost every day. And I know that if I just sit and stare at the wall and hate myself, it's not going to make anything better. But if I try to become a better person, become more aware and try little bits here and there to make the the world a, a better place. You know that's got to that's got to count for something. But 
self-forgiveness is really, really hard. And um, I just want to say you are a child. You're not a monster. You have no desire to, to, to do that today. And that's what's important. You clearly have a conscience because it bothers you. And just sending you some love. And then finally, this is a happy moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Awfulsome will be my child's middle name. I love it. I want custody on the weekends. And she writes, During the pandemic, my life has been flooded by a tidal wave of past trauma and mental disorders. But ironically, thanks to the very same pandemic, it has been the first time that I didn't have to deal with it entirely on my own as my boyfriend moved in with me a couple of months ago and our relationship has become much more sincere and intimate. My happy moment starts off pretty dismal. We were sitting on the couch watching The Crown together, a show that I love and that usually does a great job distracting me from the shit show that is reality. On this particular evening, however, images kept flashing before my eyes. Images of me cutting off my own fingers with a kitchen knife. Images of the bones sticking out and my stump fingers wiggling helplessly, blood gushing. I stiffened up and tried really hard to keep it together. I got a glass of cold water. I focused on my breath, to no avail. After the episode had ended, my boyfriend asked me if I wanted to watch another one or if I wanted to go to bed, considering it was past 1 a.m. already. I couldn't say a word. I just sat there for a couple of minutes, and he reached out to hold my hand. After a long, excruciating silence, during which I debated in my head whether it would be totally insane or insanely courageous to open up to him about it, I just did it. I told him about those images in my head. I told him that the sexual trauma from early childhood I had been remembering over the last couple of weeks was really freaking me out. I tried to describe the pictures to him, the kitchen knives, the stump fingers, and the naked boy standing in front of me looking at me. I started crying, and he held me, and I kept on talking. I told him I was really scared of my own mind and of the horrifying things my unconscious kept hurtling at me when I was least expecting it. He suggested we go on a walk. Some context. My boyfriend is the least spontaneous person on the planet. It takes him at least half an hour to make up his mind whenever he wants to get food or maybe just a coffee. So I was absolutely amazed. He got up and got my coat and hat. He even asked me if I wanted help lacing up my boots and if I need another pair of socks so my feet wouldn't get cold in the snow. He got two bottles of beer and stuck them in his coat pockets. He looked ridiculous. So we went on a walk at 2 a.m., me in my pajamas and coat, him with a bottle of beer in each pocket. The streets were deserted. We kept walking, sharing a bottle and holding hands to warm our freezing fingers. Drinking alcohol outdoors is illegal due to the pandemic. We felt like gangsters, like real cool kids. All the while, my boyfriend kept kept talking to me in such a steady and caring voice. He squeezed my hand. He made me laugh. It was the first time I ever shared the scary shit that is constantly going on in my head with someone else as it was happening. And he reacted so wonderfully. He didn't make me feel like I was too much. He let me know he cared. He did something really unexpected and out of his comfort zone to support me in this really tough moment. And he made me laugh so much that night. I've never felt so loved and so hopeful. I'm amazed that just by sharing my feelings with someone trustworthy and caring, a gruesome night that would usually have resulted in me self-harming, crying myself to sleep, etc., turned into the one of the most profound and beautiful experiences in my life. Wow. I just, I live for surveys like this. It just, you know, sometimes all the other dark shit that I read in the surveys and I hear in the interviews and in my support groups, sometimes it weighs on me uh, a, a bit. And then I read something like this and it just, uh, it, it's just like breathing oxygen. And then she, uh, she also writes, is there any way to find out if there are other listeners of the show in Austria? I'd love to connect. Try going to the forum. Go to our website, metalpod.com and go to the forum and post there. I've actually exchanged emails with uh, with somebody from Austria a while back. I, I believe I read one of her surveys. I think she lives in a on a farm 
in uh, in Austria. And I might be thinking of uh, The Sound of Music. Uh, you know what I was? God damn it. No. Uh, if... Uh, if you go to the forum, I'm sure I'm sure you can find somebody or email me, and I'll try to try to connect you. I hope you guys got something out of this episode, and um, just never forget: no matter what's going on in your brain, no matter how much the darkness is is kicking your ass, you are not alone. You are not weird. You are not broken. There is always help in some form if we're willing to get out of our comfort zone and take that scary step of opening up to someone. And, uh, yeah, you're not alone, man. Thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.